My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Imagine you're a student, paying to be in residence this semester at a post-secondary institution in a province with a high number of COVID-19 cases. Try to picture your life. What do you think you'd be doing? Keep in mind that almost every single extracurricular activity has been canceled. Almost every single class is online. Your communal areas are shut. You can't sit down to eat with friends in the cafeteria. The gym is closed. The pool is closed. If there's an ice rink, that's closed too. Campus bars, no. House parties? Not unless you want a nice, fat, fine. Dating? I mean, maybe, but you have to know that that's pretty risky too. So what do you do with your spare time? How do you blow off steam? Where do you hang out with your peers? How do you gather and party and do anything other than sit by yourself in a small dorm room? Well, you could go for long walks. You could have picnics if you wear enough warm clothing. You could, I don't know, play frisbee in the quad. Or you could meet up in a park after dark at a predetermined location and fight one another while your classmates place bets. No, I mean, you really could do that at least until a couple weeks ago. Something tells me there probably won't be a second card. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Selena Ross is a digital reporter for CTV News in Montreal. Hello, Selena. Hello. So uh, we're going to break the rule right away because we're going to talk about Fight Club. <laughs> it's been done. It's been done a bunch lately. <laughs> yeah. How did you hear about this story? It was sort of just floating around Montreal Twitter a, a lot in a, a very quickly, a couple days, I guess last week or the week before. It, I think that I heard that it was first picked up in sort of a student meme account or somebody was collecting memes and they put the poster up and then it sort of found its way onto Twitter and then it became, it sort of took on a life of its own. And for a couple of days, people were passing it around and just um, kind of joking about it endlessly, but they all believed it, was, it wasn't real. Uh, so I was trying to figure out if the Fight Club actually happened. Can you describe the poster that was floating around? So it is a pastel green poster, clearly made with some kind of, you know, basic graphics program. And it says, Fight Night, Monday at 8 p.m., Forbes Field by Upper Res. And then it has a list of scheduled events um, with the names of a bunch of different guys, sort of like the matchups, and it says their name and what res they live in. I'm not going to say their names because we, you know, we didn't publish that, but it would be, you know, like, for example, John from RVC versus um, like Frank from this other res. So like an actual boxing card, kind of. Kind of, yeah. I mean, not that I've seen a lot of boxing cards, but yeah, something like that. And it has, uh, let's see, seven matchups listed here. 
but then it says on the side, there will also be spontaneous matches between scheduled events with some opportunities for cash prizes. Come prep to fight, even if you aren't sure yet. So they're definitely leaving it open for, I guess, amateurs, even beyond the McGill fighters. It also says betting will be organized by RVC's Floor 11 Casino. That's the name of one of the residences. Um, and then it says, there's a lot of exclamation marks in here. It says, spectators are absolutely welcome. Cheer for your homies. Bring what you need and want. Have a good time. This is a friendly event. And at the bottom, in very small type, it says, we will have gloves if competitors want and basic first aid. So what happened? I talked to one guy who was there and, uh, you know, he described pretty much what you'd expect from the poster. Just to be clear, things that people in other cities may not know about McGill. At McGill, only the first year students live in res. So when people saw that it was a res event, they, or, you know, that there were residences involved, they knew it was something involving only the, the first year students. Hmm. So this just sort of added a whole layer of like confusion around what the social scene had turned into. So this, the, the, the guy I talked to is a third year student. So, you know, I think 20, 21 years old. Um, and he, you know, is, has spent a couple of years off campus. Um, he says he was walking by uh, the base of the mountain. So if you're not from Montreal, it's sort of it's a major street that goes alongside Mont Royal, um, where there's a big kind of monument and people, there's a big park. Um, and it also backs onto where a bunch of the McGill residences are. And there's it backs onto a sports field kind of. So he was walking by there. He heard kind of like cheering and shouting and screaming so loud that it broke through the music on his headphones from from a distance away. And he took off his his earphones and kind of went up to investigate. And he said that he saw just like a circle of of kids just like screaming and losing it while like people in the middle just fought. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it was a fight night. It's exactly what what you might imagine. And so just to be clear for people not in Quebec or in Montreal, um, there's some pretty heavy COVID restrictions in place in the city right now, right? Oh, yeah. And and more, I mean, more so over the last six months than I think has been true anywhere else in Canada. I mean, we have been, you know, ha- have had less respite from that. It's pretty well established that you must keep distance with people outside your household when you're pretty much anywhere. So when it became um, clear that this was an event that had actually happened, uh, what did the university say and do? Uh, they have not acknowledged yet that it did happen. They're sort of sort of the only people who are still abiding by the rule of Fight Club. They keep, I mean, I asked them a couple times, you know, given all these things I've heard, you know, do you have any follow-up comment on this? And they just said again, we can't confirm that this happened. And, I, you know, as a journalist, I was kind of being like, I can confirm it happened. Like I talked to people who who went, um, but no, they've just said they they have no evidence of it. And it's not just the word of the one or two people you talked to, right? There, there's been videos and stuff of this going around. Right, exactly. There were a few videos. I think the organizers um, got really nervous afterwards. They, I don't think they expected any of this to happen. Of course, they didn't think it would blow up in Montreal, but. Um, from what I heard from students, they told everyone who was there to sort of delete their videos immediately and just erase the the trail of evidence. Social media being what it is, a lot of those survived. And so um, when I I sort of put like semi-joking, but actually, you know, serious call out on Twitter, asking for people to get in touch with me if they knew anybody who had been to the Fight Club. And 
um, you know, people did end up forwarding me quite a few screenshots and videos they'd saved, you know, just from scrolling through Snapchat and stuff. So yeah, there's, there's a bunch of video evidence out there. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. So, I mean, this whole, uh, first of all, this story sounds insane and it's it's kind of amusing in a dark way, but it also um, speaks to, like, the student experience on campus this year, which is, like, what at McGill now compared to what it would be in a normal year? Well, I, I have a pretty good grasp on that since I lived in one of the residences, uh, you know, more than a decade ago. I'm, I'm in my 30s now, but when I was at McGill in my first year, I lived in... One of the kind of bigger buildings that is now actually not being used because it was deemed kind of too communal and too, like, they're shared bathrooms and it wasn't safe enough. I feel, I mean, it's certainly not at all the same as when I was there. And even the kid who was there two years ago said it seems like nothing like his experience. I mean, imagine, so a huge proportion of the students at McGill are international students. A lot of them are from the States. Imagine, you know, moving to a different country, moving away from your family for the first time, and you're living in a little dorm room in a big building where you're under lockdown, kind of within that building, kind of within that room. And you're, the classes, there's no in-person classes happening. So you're doing all your school on your computer. Uh, there's So that's kind of the starting point. And there's so many other small things that I realized when talking, you know, talking to these students. Like, give me some examples if you can. Sure. So the, the student I talked to who's older, my starting point in kind of wondering about this was that he'd been joking to his friends. It's not really a joke. It's, but you know, he's been sort of darkly joking about this to his friends that it seemed like the residences were getting more and more jail-like in the activities people were doing. So for a while they were just kind of like huddled around smoking outside and then they started fighting. Um, and that he'd been called this one res that is a converted hotel um, on Park Avenue. And he said that he had been, you know, nicknaming that Alcatraz when he talks about it to his friends. And so I was like, you know, that's kind of funny, but it's also that's kind of alarming. And I, so when I talked to the student who was living in a different res, but they all, you know, the students all tend to know each other. You know, it actually sounded so much worse than that in a way. Um, this, this student who goes by they pronouns, um, they said that, you know, in some of the reses, rule, you know, a rule has been in place on and off where you can't even have any people in your room or go into anyone else's room. So in addition to not going to class and not being able to go to any restaurants or all these things that are closed because we are in, you know, in Quebec, we call it a red zone, but um, you also can't even go to, you can't eat in the cafeteria. I know that one of the cafeterias is closed. And so the student I talked to said that they would, you know, their main outing was to walk, you know, a block or two to this cafeteria that was open, wait in line for apparently up to an hour um, because the capacity, because they closed this other cafeteria. So there's, you know, just tons of students trying to get food. So they line up probably in like a distance lineup but then the food is only for takeout. So they're getting like a takeout container of res food um, that they then have to leave immediately with by themselves, walk back to their own residence, 
go back to their room and eat it in their room at their desk by themselves, um, you know, in front of their laptop. For reasons that we understand, sort of all of the group activity aspect of res life has been cut out. And I just can't, I can't imagine what that would be like for, for these kind of 18-year-olds, you know? And they're paying for it. Yeah, they're paying for, they're paying for the place to live. I know that some of the students came from areas in the States that were, you know, very hard hit by COVID over the summer. And the student I talked to said that some of them were sort of betting on Canada and Montreal as being a better place to be during COVID where they'd have a bit more freedom and the case counts were lower. And I mean, it's definitely true that Quebec has a lower case count right now or, you know, lower rates than a lot of states. So it's probably safer from a, you know, a disease perspective, but, you know, our rules are pretty, are pretty strict. And, you know, McGill on top of that is trying to keep people safe and has, has its own strict rules. So you can't, the students can't really bubble up with each other the same way, you know, you can if you're just out living in Montreal in an apartment, of course. This student also told me that Friday nights are just completely dead. You could just hear a pin drop, like there's no, you know, they're obviously not allowed to gather in groups, but there's also sort of security people who walk the halls and listen for noise, because if they hear kind of too much noise coming from a room, apparently they knock and check that there isn't a group in there. And when they want to hang out or get some fresh air, they just go sit on a bench kind of in the cold along this sort of quiet street. Um, obviously, and, and then the student talked about going for breakfast. <laughs> and I was like, where are you going for breakfast? That's not like nobody's, no, nowhere's open for breakfast. And they said, um, no, I just mean, and as if it was like a fun thing, like when I'm, you know, when I go out for my, my breakfast trips and I'm picturing myself like going to a diner with my friends when I was that age and, it, you know, it was great. And then they clarified that they were just going to line up at the cafeteria to get their takeout breakfast. And that's like their, that's like their fun activity for the day. So... See, I'm a huge proponent of all sorts of COVID restrictions, but I can understand why these kids are talking about it like it's jail and uh, starting a fight club. There's nothing else to do. Tell me, uh, so is that how they started gambling? Because the last thing I wanted to ask you about is that there's a casino in one of the residences, allegedly. Right. I don't know. I haven't been able to figure out much about the casino, but from what I guess the rumors had or what the students had gathered, um, it was just sort of a informal, they would organize these poker games um, just on this one floor of this one res and gave it a name. They just called themselves the casino. But, um, you know, the students said that there's just this intense need to blow off steam and not just because of living in res, but because this is the same class of kids who didn't have a graduation and who right. kind of experienced that major life transition, you know, like your last semester of high school, your graduation, your prom in the States or, you know, whatever, your graduation dance, you know, your summer, that's like a key summer for many people. And then going to off to university for the first time, they didn't experience any of that really at all. They were just home. So, you know, the student I spoke to said that there's just been this buildup of tension and just energy and that some people were struggling. I mean, some people are clearly struggling more with it than others, sort of obviously. But for almost everybody, there's sort of this sense of just needing to do something, I guess, needing to find some way to connect with people. You know, the quote that the kid gave me was that, you know, there wasn't murder in these kids' eyes. It wasn't like a, you know, blowing off steam by watching your friends fight to the death. It was, it was just kind of grappling and wrestling and 
you know, he didn't see any bloodshed, for example. And it seemed like it was more just a fun activity and a way to have something to do and have something to get excited about. So that made me feel a little better than what, you know, going into it, I really didn't know. I was like, how, how bad, badly were they fighting? How, uh, you know, were they hurting each other to, you know, feel something? But that, I don't think that's really what it was. Well, I mean, it's kind of funny because we made jokes about Fight Club through this whole conversation, but that is pretty much the premise of the film. The narrator creates a violent persona in his head because he's trapped in the prison of a dead-end job, the same existence every day, the same four walls around him, and that sounds like not too different from what we're talking about with these kids here. I, I did. I was worried about that when I started the when I started looking into it. I really was picturing something more like that. It's true in a way. They definitely wanted to just do something and have some a release valve, maybe something. Have a yeah, have a release valve exactly. Um, I felt better about it for a while, and then I talked again to this student um, who who wasn't at the Fight Club, but he's just living living in in one of those central residences just talked about how the students are hyper-aware of each other's um, ways of coping and the ways they're all finding to cope and how over the course of the semester they're all sort of um, clearly turning to different things. Um, There was a group that went home as soon as the Red Zone was, uh, you know, brought down on Montreal who basically went back to live with their families um, because they just kind of were, were not coping well at all at that point. Um, there's a group that sort of maybe turned more inward and has just become more withdrawn and hangs out alone in their rooms. And the student said that there was a group who, who was kind of having illicit parties for a while and trying to gather and trying to do all these sort of risk-taking things. Um, and, and that, you know, there are sort of disagreements among the different groups and sort of factions with different students blaming each other for acting different ways, but it's all, you know, it's become, it sounds like, very clear to all of them that people find their own ways to cope. And so um, it's just been a really strange time with a lot of people under pressure. Selena, thank you for talking to us about this. And uh, I hope, man, I hope those kids get some sort of normal uh, first-year experience somewhere along the way. I know. I, I did. I will add that some of them are... Uh, actually moving out of res after this semester and they're going to find apartments and kind of bubble up with each other and be able to have sort of a more normal university life, which obviously sounds like it would be much easier on them. Um, So maybe, maybe that will help a little bit. Selena Ross of CTV News, Montreal. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. We have lots of stories about post-secondary institutions, none like this one. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can, of course, find us in your favorite podcast player. You pick one. I don't have to list them for you. You know what you like by now. And you can email us anytime, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Thank you.
In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.